0: Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up.
1: Come on in. We're really glad you're here for the Three Martini Lunch. We have good, good, and crazy martinis for conservatives today. But Jim, the good one's really, really good. We should also tell folks about the really, really good sponsor we've got, and that's Plexiderm. Triplexiderm.com is where you want to head, and if you use our promo code Martini, you get 50% off plus an additional $10 off. So that's excellent news, but uh, the best news of the weekend was the fact that Abu Bakar al-Baghdadi is dead. Uh, the raid happened on Saturday. We were pretty sure, based on what we were hearing Saturday night, that the raid was successful, and he was clearly identified as being officially deceased thanks to our armed forces, even though he technically... Detonated his own suicide vest. And uh, Jim, a lot of days uh, President Trump's WWE style of uh, talking as President of the United States is not particularly welcome. Yesterday, didn't mind it so much. Here's a couple of clips. Uh, first of all, as he gives credit to the U.S. Armed Forces who carried out the mission.
2: U.S. Special Operations Forces executed a dangerous and daring nighttime raid in northwestern Syria and accomplished their mission in grand style. The U.S. personnel were incredible. I got to watch much of it. No personnel were lost in the operation, while a large number of Baghdadi's fighters and companions were killed with him. He died after running into a dead-end tunnel, whimpering and crying and screaming all the way.
1: And here's what else he had to say.
2: Last night was a great night for the United States and for the world. A brutal killer, one who has caused so much hardship and death, has violently been eliminated. He will never again harm another innocent man, woman, or child. He died like a dog. He died like a coward. The world is now a much safer place.
1: Jim, I'm okay with that rhetoric today, and uh, very much so. Oh, it's, it's welcome. And first of all, I just want to say uh,
0: congratulations to you, Greg, for learning the precise pronunciation of Abu Bakr al Baghdadi before we never need to know this again. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, well, you know, this is indeed good news for the United States, good news for the world. Um, I suspect like the, people are like oh this is good, but they probably didn't. You didn't see people celebrating outside the White House the way it was with the uh, the the raid against Osama bin Laden. Baghdadi figured out uh, that he was in a lower profile than bin Laden. Um, that he didn't put out regularly televised statements. He had one kind of prominent one. Uh, that's where you see most of the file photos from. Maybe a second video here and there, but he was not an omnipresent media presence, attempting to terrify the West and telling us how they were going to behead us, et cetera, et cetera. This doesn't make him that much less effective as a leader. No, ISIS never quite launched off anything quite as, uh, as uh, on the large scale of the nine 11 attacks. Um, but that doesn't mean ISIS didn't do a lot. And you and I, I was thinking about, you know, Greg, I wrote about this in the morning jolt today. You and I have been doing this podcast for a long time. We've originally marked our, was it nine year anniversary? Yes. And, you know, in that time, we've seen the, the Bataclan theater attacks in Paris. We've seen San Bernardino. We've seen Orlando, ISIS, you know, even though it was primarily built around the Islamic State of, of Iraq and Syria, um, and according to, you know, terrorism experts, ISIS, you know, the, the, that creating that caliphate was always their, their primary goal and what they were very focused on. They clearly had an inspirational effect on all kinds of aspiring jihadists around the world, and it was really kind of horrifying to see, you know, metro stations in Brussels and airports and... Uh, the church in in Normandy, and the the, beast, the, the beach in, in Nice, France. Um, you can just go down the list. Almost every major European city had at least one attack by some uh, jihadist who was inspired by ISIS. And, of course, then they had the videos of the beheadings and setting the pilot from Jordan. Like ISIS, you know, it, it, I don't know if there's a lot of time, it makes a lot of sense to spend a lot of time arguing about whether al-Qaeda or ISIS was worse. I think we can make the argument that they were, Um, comparable in their menace to Americans and their desire to kill Americans. And while, yes, it is correct that ISIS is not completely defeated, there are still a bunch of guys running around there, the news about Uh, some folks escaping from the prisons in in Syria is really ominous. Both ISIS and al-Qaeda are a shadow of their former selves. You don't think about them very much. And I had to go look it up. Current leader of al-Qaeda, Ayman al-Zawahiri, you may remember him as that Egyptian doctor who was the number two guy behind bin Laden. Uh, issued a statement around the anniversary of 9-11 attacks in which he urged people to launch attacks. We didn't hear about <laughs> many attacks around the anniversary, certainly not on the U.S. homeland. And uh, he, he does a lot of complaining about uh, these kids today. They're backtracking from the cause of jihad and they're not fully committed. He sounds like, like Grandpa Simpson uh, of the jihadist set. He's complaining about these kids today and they're not really committed. Um, and so just the status of where we are in the war on terror probably premature to say, we have won the war on terror. Uh, Islamist jihadism is probably still going to be around for the rest of our lives, but it is much less of a threat than it used to be. You know these guys, if they had the ability, would be launching these attacks. We've seen, they don't need uh, fancy chemical weapons or biological weapons or or, or nukes or something like that. They can use a van. They can try to use uh, propane gas to build a bomb. They can try to just use knives. These guys, you know, are very low-tech Uh, asymmetrical warfare, and you don't see these attacks anymore. We don't worry about them anymore. We worry more about mass shooters. (laughs) We worry more about domestic terrorists, but we don't worry. And and I I don't think we need to take a moment to just kind of recognize how astounding that is, whether you want to take your your measuring stick as, you know, September 12th, 2001, and where we thought we would be today, or you want to take any point in the 2014, 2015, 2016, um, we forget 2016, you had the summer, uh, the Omar Mateen shooting up the, the Pulse nightclub in Orlando. Um, the people also right there, they had that bomb that went off in New York City, thankfully didn't kill anyone. The bomb set off in New Jersey along that marathon route, thankfully, again, didn't kill anybody. And then right after uh, the election in 2016, uh, some refugee got into a van and tried to run people down at o- Ohio State University. Um, we were under attack from ISIS quite regularly during that time period. I think it had a pretty significant effect on the 2016 election. And here we are, October 28th, 2019. The average American doesn't spend a lot of time worrying about Islamist terrorism. That is a huge testament to our military, to our intelligence agencies, to domestic law enforcement, to our first responders, to um, diplomats who help build the alliances against these groups. Uh, look, this, we we have, you know, we have largely won this war, and I don't think we always recognize it. And wherever you are on the political spectrum, every American should be proud as punch about that.
1: Jim, uh, it was a great day. Uh, we're always happy to see wonderful news like this, particularly given all the uh, false reports that we've seen over the years about hoping that we got him when we didn't actually get him. Now everybody seems quite certain that that is the case. But uh, let's talk about the coverage of this now. Um, The Washington Post is getting the most heat of this for its – first of all, they actually put together an actual obituary for Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. And uh, the headline for a brief time read, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, comma, austere religious scholar at helm of Islamic State dies at 48. And, of course, that got a ton of blowback. A lot of people – putting out their own fictional obits, uh, basically whitewashing evil monsters from history, you know, Adolf Hitler painter and uh, a dynamic public speaker dead at 56, you know, completely missing the whole point of why they're well known for their evil and their carnage. And then the explanation from the Washington Post was regarding our al-Baghdadi obituary, the headlines should never have read that way. And we changed it quickly. Jim, you work in journalism. So do I. It's amazing how these headlines just write themselves. It's it's the immaculate headline, Greg. It just seemed <laughs> to spontaneously appear out of nowhere. No,
0: actually, what, what makes it even worse is that the first one, I think so they referred to him as the um, terrorist in chief, or, or it, was, it was some sort of like it was a more accurate headline to begin, and then they changed it to austere scholar, which are not the first words that come to mind when it comes to al-Baghdadi. For I mean, just for the first thing that comes to mind that doesn't seem very austere, Greg, was the mass rapes. That's really not a uh, a monk-like existence uh, for most people. Uh, by the way, out of all the different varieties, there are a lot of really good fictional Washington Post obituary headlines. My favorite might have been renowned foodie Jeffrey Dahmer dead at 44. Um, but uh, so it, it's deeply... Like, there are times where the frustration and anger at the mainstream media can be over the top. This is not one of those times. Someone had to change that headline. And you know, these things don't just happen on their own. I, I know there was a shock when that ludicrously anti-Semitic uh, cartoon got through in the International Herald Tribune um, about maybe six months ago or so. And people were shocked that one person had the authority to post these cartoons on there. There wasn't somebody else looking over their shoulders saying, yeah, good choice or bad choice or something like that. Oh, it never hurts to have a second set of eyes. Um, but for those of you wondering, how could the, uh, the post have an obituary ready to go? Most major newspapers will actually write obituaries for prominent figures well ahead of time. Um, I think there was one a couple of years ago where uh, it was the obituary. I think it might have been George uh, H. W. Bush. The obituary was written by Adam Clymer, uh, who had written for the New York Times for many years and who he himself had passed away uh, many years ago. But he had written. It was sitting there in the post in the New York Times database. You make the appropriate updates to say when and how the person died. And then you're ready to go with a fairly detailed obituary ready to go. So it's not surprising they had it ready to go. The headline change makes no sense. Oh, by the way, there was a little bit of that. He was a scrappy underdog with a dream tone to that. Uh, <laughs> no one expected Abu Bakr Baghdadi to be the guy who could change the world. You know? Um, you have the feeling you're getting ready to watch the behind the music documentary of uh, the rise and fall of ISIS. Um, but the, the Post is get, it, it deserves every bit of criticism that it's getting. And I think what's really bothersome is that there wasn't any ability to say, like, if it's the low-level intern, fine. My suspicion is it wasn't a low-level intern. My suspicion is it was somebody who seemed to believe either, hey, we're going to offend all of our pro-ISIS readers out there. <laughs> um, or, or, or who genuinely believed, well, actually, I mean, yes, he launched one of the world's most dangerous and you know, horrific terrorist groups but he really didn't get enough credit for his early work as a scholar. <laughs> you can't get your head around this. And, you know, if you're the Washington Post, um, you, 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 this is the moment where you need the Perry White-style old crusty editor to run through the newsroom screaming at someone, what the hell is wrong with you? Um, and the, the fact that they put out that mealy mouth PR statement does not uh, does not reassure people. We've seen this before when the New York Times said uh, – that the the Tucson shooting was because of Sarah Palin's Facebook when nothing in the record uh, indicated that was the case at all. There are people in journalism who simply choose to believe what they want to believe and choose to remember what they want to remember. And as a result of it, they end up with a worldview that makes absolutely no sense to the rest of us.
1: And uh, remember, we had a very uh, critical obit of uh, the Koch brother did, that died earlier this year. And not to say that there wasn't anything negative in the Abu Bakar al-Baghdadi obituary, but a uh, little balance here, Washington Post. And I also remember that their Castro obit was uh, pretty flowery. I don't remember the specifics, but... Uh, renowned baseball pitcher. <laughs> yes, exactly. Cigar aficionado. Oh, well, if you're middle-aged or older, you uh, might be seeing some wrinkles around your eyes. Crows' feet or those large under-eye bags. It's inevitable that at some point you're going to need it. Well, everybody except Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi at this point. Uh. He's not going to need plexiderm. But now imagine that those wrinkles and those bags are gone. And I'm not talking about some risky, expensive surgery. We're talking about these things being gone in just minutes. It's called plexiderm, a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under-eye bags in minutes. It is the edge you've been looking for. Don't believe it? Just wait until you see the results. Do you want to look 10 years younger?
0: You will look rejuvenated and simply put, you will be blown away by the results. Plexiderm can give you the confidence you need to be yourself at work or out with friends. The best part is
1: Plexiderm goes on clear so nobody will know that you are using it. It gets better. Go to tryplexiderm.com and use our code MARTINI for 50% off plus an additional $10 off. You heard me right. That's 50% off plus an extra 10 bucks off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mentioning code MARTINI. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. Visit triplexiderm.com today and use the code MARTINI at checkout. That's triplexiderm.com promo code MARTINI. All right, Jim, on to our second good MARTINI today. And I don't know whether to be really scared here or to be really pleasantly surprised here, because once again, it's been a few months, but Rahm Emanuel is again the good martini. You remember a few months ago, he was uh, absolutely on the side of the Chicago PD, was absolutely appalled by the conduct of uh, Jesse Smollett, and uh, well, now here he goes again. And considering his brother's role in Obamacare and his own, basically berating House Democrats to... To get on board, it's amazing that Rahm Emanuel is now telling the Democrats, hey, ixnay on the Medicare for All May. Uh, But here's what he had to say in the Washington Post. Medicare for All is guaranteed to frighten many among the vast majority of Americans who already have health coverage. It would require a disastrously unpopular tax increase on the middle class, and it would unite a world of the special interests against us. This dog just won't hunt. Perhaps worse, we cannot afford to try and then fail. Losing on health care will make it more difficult for us to make progress on education, the environment, or other social justice issues. Uh, we need to chart a different path. I'm mystified as to why at a moment when 90% of Americans already have insurance, our presidential debates are so exclusively focused on expanding coverage rather than containing costs. So, Jim, once again, Rahm Emanuel is making sense, and I'm not sure what to think about this.
0: I was going to say, he may, you know, Rahm Emanuel is never going to be our favorite person on Three Martini Lunch podcast, uh, mailing dead fish to people, stabbing tables and pledging that all your enemies will be dead is really more of what we associate with another Chicago figure like Al Capone. Uh, nonetheless, <laughs> Rahm Emanuel does kind of, you know, it, it looks like he's, he's, had, he's done a stint as a congressman, as a White House chief of staff, as, as mayor of Chicago. And it's pretty safe to say he's done with, uh, uh, with politics for a while. It's unlikely he's going to run for office again. He certainly made his share of enemies uh, in Chicago, particularly on, on the, you know, he, he was by, by Chicago standards, a centrist Democrat. Um, and he seems to now kind of enjoy his role of telling his fellow Democrats things they don't want to hear. And as much as, you know, you and I might, you know, we, we, again, he seems like a bit of a sociopath. Um, he he does have a, a rather, uh, you know, finely tuned antenna for where the electorate is. People forget that in 2006, you know, Republicans, Democrats have been trying to win back the House for a really long time. They did not succeed in two, until 2006. And they had a whole bunch of reasons for that success. Hurricane Katrina was bad. The Iraq War was bad. Abramov and other scandals were bad. But also in a whole bunch of districts that were fairly purplish or conservative leaning, you know, Rahm Emanuel went out and recruited candidates like Heath Shuler, who was pro gun and who could run as, who also had no particular um, uh, record as a state legislator. There were so Republicans who couldn't run the traditional. They voted to raise taxes 8,000 times. Type ads. Rahm Emanuel you know, knows what it takes to get Democrats elected. And when he says, hey, guys, this isn't going to work, this is going to you know, end up uh, chasing away a whole bunch of people who might otherwise be interested, Democrats should sit up and take notice. My suspicion is that they won't pay any attention to this, and that's what makes it a good martini, Greg.
1: All right, Jim, let's move on to our crazy martini now. And if you have small children in the car... Um Pause might be a good idea right about now. We have uh, not talked about this story over the past several days, thinking it had been largely a personal matter happening between a couple that was splitting up, but uh, now it's gotten to a level where we pretty much have to talk about it here. Katie Hill, at least for the moment, is a Democratic Congresswoman serving the 25th District of California. She won a very close race against uh, Republican incumbent Steve Knight in 2018. A lot of folks on the right wonder if new ballot harvesting laws may have uh, helped push her over the top. But nonetheless, she had the seat and still has it for the next few days, I guess. She's planning to resign this week after uh, mounting pressure due to photos that have been released of her and, let's just say, some compromising positions. She blames it on her ex-husband as they're going through a nasty divorce. The one that made the rounds uh, earlier uh, a few days ago was her undressed while combing the hair of a staffer, which certainly raised some eyes. It was uh, revealed that she and her husband, as they were getting along better at the time and the staffer, were what's apparently known as a throuple instead of a couple. And uh, then the Daily Mail came out with even more revealing pictures. This time she's unclothed with a bong and so forth. And so this debate ensues about whether this proves that she's unfit for office. Other people saying this is essentially revenge porn and this is disgusting that it never went public. Uh, Nonetheless, she is going to resign at some point this week. She announced that on Sunday. She's obviously blaming her uh, estranged husband, who she calls abusive. and Says it's an appalling invasion of her privacy. I think the most curious line here is where she says, I know that as long as I'm in Congress, we'll live fearful of what might come next and how much it will hurt. So... Jim, it seems pretty obvious that there's more out there that he could release. It's disgusting on a whole number of levels here. Uh, Nancy Pelosi clearly uh, giving her the shove here because she mentions in her brief statement following the resignation announcement that we must ensure a climate of integrity and dignity in the Congress and all workplaces. Jim, what do you make of uh, this sordid affair, to put it mildly?
0: Sure. Uh, I guess at the beginning, is probably eight, October 18th or so. Jennifer Von Lahr, uh, over at Red State writes the first article on this, and she does not put off every photo she says that she had access to. She has a source who provides her with this information. And look, and, and she writes up right, right at the top of the article, this would not be the first time a member of Congress has cheated on their spouse. This stuff has happened. Generally, this is not a matter we can debate about whether that was a, a proper matter for the public to, to weigh in on or to evaluate for a, a member of uh, for a person elected to office. But once you're doing things with a staffer, it changes. Uh, probably, you know, one of the big arguments that came out of me too was this argument of when the boss states an employee, is it ethical or is it inherently unethical? And a whole bunch of companies, uh, including a whole bunch that I've worked for over the years, have made very clear, if you want to get involved with somebody you work with, and one person has authority over another. Something's got to change. We got to transfer somebody to another department. We got to, we got to do something because it creates too much of a potential problem there, both over favoritism, uh, over retaliation for the employee if the, if the relationship goes bad. You could argue whether the underling really can consent all that well with someone who signs their paycheck. Um, and what's more, it's kind of the question of how, for everybody else in the office. All of a sudden, you know, you get asked to shift for. Uh, Susie because Susie doesn't you know doesn't want to work that day well can you say no because you know that Susie is the you know boss's uh, girlfriend and you know that you're uh, in a situation where all, it creates all kinds of complications and pressures for all kinds of people who even separate from the two people involved in the couple last year the House of Representatives said you can't do this you can't date Co- members of Congress cannot date the, you know be involved in a relationship with their staff and that is apparently what's here Hill admitted a relationship with a campaign staffer, but said that she had not had a relationship with a congressional office staffer, which is, you know, now you're you're in a gray area because the congressional rules don't say anything about campaign staffers, but the same dynamics at work. So it's not really clear why that would be not that much of a big deal. The House Ethics Committee, you know, and also the, the original report on Red State, they, she's got screenshots of texts and all that kind of stuff. The screenshots of texts indicate not just an affair with the, uh, campaign staffer and the, the thruple or whatever they were calling it back there, but also an affair with a congressional staffer. This is in violation of house rules. And again, most people would say, you're not supposed to do this. It, you know, if you want to try to transfer this person to another's congressional office and Hey, you know, that, that's fine. You can try to work that stuff out. People are going to fall in love or find feelings for each other in all kinds of different circumstances. But once it's a boss and an employee, you're in a murky troubled area. And she did it. Well, okay, well, correction. Either she, either she did it and she's choosing to resign so it doesn't all get exposed or she, if she, she contends she didn't do it. But then of course, the fact that she resigned like a day after the House Ethics Committee said it was gonna start looking into it suggests that the House Ethics Committee was going to find something that was going to reflect badly on her. You know, it's a sad and sordid set of circumstances. I'm sure she feels like she's been uh, treated unfairly. I don't know if the world needed to see all of those uh, infamous photos there. But at the the end of the day, she was doing something that was explicitly prohibited by House rules. And I think what's driving me crazy, Greg, is already there's a column in the Los Angeles Times arguing that, oh, they're only going after her because she's a woman. Well, no, (laughs) this has been enforced. Or, oh, they're only going after her because she's bisexual. Well, look, when they wrote the rules, they didn't write in an exception to say, but it's OK for women members of Congress. They didn't write in there, but this is OK for bisexual members of Congress. These are the rules, these are the circumstances. I think those rules are in good are, are, are in there for a good place. It's really kind of you know mind-boggling that after me too, all of a sudden you'd get voices on the left saying, Well, wait a second, wait a second. In this circumstance, it's perfectly okay for a boss to have a sexual relationship with an underling. And I think this get you know give us an indicator of how much motivated reasoning was going on here. Um, people who liked Katie Hill or thought, well, this I don't want to see Democrats resign. Look, it's a purple district. Uh, Republicans do have a shot at winning this uh, seat in in, uh, November of next year. I don't think it's going to be a – my guess is i got to look up the California law. They could very well have a special election between now and then. Okay, here's the problem. All members of Congress should recognize you're not that irreplaceable. Everybody's replaceable. And at some point, if you make a decision like this, you have to accept the consequences. I think Katie Hill knew darn well what she was doing when she got involved with someone who was a staffer. You have an opportunity. There's got to be some window there where you can like, OK, I got it. We, we can't continue this relationship if I'm your boss. She didn't do that. This is where we ended up. I think that's what matters about the story
1: much more than all the
0: you know pictures that everybody's clicking on and sharing around social media.
1: Quite a start to the week, Jim. We'll see what happens tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow's Friday, right? <laughs> feels like it already. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Karambas of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. So glad you were with us. And don't forget to head to triplexiderm.com and use the promo code martini for 50% off plus an additional $10 off. And tune in again Tuesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.